The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, we begin today with a quote from Robert Zaretsky author of Victories Never Last, Reading and Caregiving in a Time of Plague. Quote, I thought I knew both the plague by Albert Camus and what it brings to the story of our own plague experience. After reading Kaplan and Maris's States of Plague, I realized I could not have been more mistaken. This is a brilliant book that is always eloquent, often insightful, and, at times, simply heartbreaking. End quote. Unless you are under the age of, let's say, two, you have your own experience of the coronavirus pandemic. You lived through the fear and the uncertainty and the isolation. Maybe it disrupted your life, took loved ones, made you cancel key plans. Maybe it was a place for self-reflection or renewal. Maybe it taught you something about humanity, for better or worse. And maybe, if you're like many people, the reading of The Plague by Camus was part of your experience. Sales of the 1947 novel by one of France's philosopher kings skyrocketed during the pandemic. Listen to that sentence again. I thought I knew the plague and what it brings to the story of our own plague experience. I could not have been more mistaken. This is an expert talking a man who literally wrote the book on the time of plague. And yet, there's more. Alice Kaplan and Laura Maris are particularly well-positioned to take us deeper into what it's like to read Camus during a pandemic. We talk to them today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I hope you're all doing well. A true three-course meal today. We're going to share the first of our listener examples of literary awe. Then we'll hear from our Camus experts, Laura and Alice. That's a hearty main course, to be sure. Very tasty and nutritious. And then for dessert, we'll have a My Last Book with, well, let's see, who should we choose for that. We've got a bunch of these in the tank. Should we look for a nice pairing or or go against the grain as a kind of palate cleanser? Well, let's do the nice pairing. We'll hear from Alison Strayer, translator of French Nobel laureate Annie Ernaux, about her choice for the last book she will ever read. Speaking of French Nobel Prize winners, Albert Camus won the Nobel, of course, at the very young age of 44, making him the second youngest winner in the category of literature. Do you know who the youngest was? We will reveal that at the end of the show. Of course, you could go Google it if you're impatient, but why would you do such a thing when all you have to do is wait and let us do all the work for you? 
Save those precious fingers or thumbs. Just let them rest. <laughs> Just let them rest. Save them for Googling something better. Like, let's say, how do I sign up to help the podcast? <laughs> how, do I, how do I help Jack Wilson's history of literature? Or maybe, I love this podcast more than life itself. How can I donate a small portion of my fortune? out of appreciation for Jack Wilson and Emma Wilson, the producer, for bringing me this twice-weekly miracle. Well, actually, save yourself again. I'll just tell you how to do that. You can go to historyofliteraturecom slash donate for a one-time donation or head on over to patreon.com slash literature to sign up to make a small monthly contribution. Our thanks go to all of our generous supporters. How many of you have typed that, by the way? How many of you have typed, I love the History of Literature podcast more than life itself, etc., etc.? One wonders if it's enough that Google now auto-completes it, and if so, how many words it takes before Google fills in that little paragraph for you. I'm not so vain that I think it will start with the word I. That's too much to ask. The word I, no doubt, leads to things like, I forgot how to spell my name, or I just ate too many radishes, what should I do? Common problems in search of an answer. But once you put love in there, then we might be in the ballpark. I love, no doubt, undoubtedly, it fills in the History of Literature podcast at that point. And that is all thanks to you. Dear listeners, you fill me with awe, which is a nice transition to our next little morsel, which is literary awe. Remember our discussion of awe where we discussed that feeling of trans... Uh, our definition we gave, that feeling of transcendence, that you're part of something larger than what you knew or expected, a feeling that might come from from gazing upon a perfect statue or, or hearing some wondrous music or being outside during a sun shower, maybe, maybe being in proximity to a thunderous waterfall or a majestic mountain or a view through a telescope. And we speculated that Literature had the potential to do that. Poetry, perhaps, something beautiful, a line that strikes you in a certain way, or a perfect novel, a play. But what? What could do? It's not easy to compete with something like the Grand Canyon or the sun as it sinks below the horizon. Where will our literary awe come from? Does it ever happen? So, this is from listener Lori, who writes, Dear Jack, Experiencing awe when reading a book is perhaps not as common as it is when looking at a great painting or a starry sky at night. But it happened to me when I was young, around 10 or 11, when I read A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. This was in the late 60s when young girls in fiction did not rocket through space and time the way they do now. Instead, that kind of adventure belonged to boys and men, or at least that's how it was in my reading experience. Then I came across Meg Murray 
in a wrinkle in time in my grade school's library, which was scarcely bigger than a janitor's closet. As soon as I started reading the book, I felt as though a current was going through me. Even though I was young, I knew I was in the presence of something wild and wonderful as I followed Meg, Charles Wallace, and Calvin through space and time. I will never forget that experience of awe and wonder. Even today, I remain so grateful to Madeline Langle for showing me how young girls can be brave, feisty, and adventurous, how science can have mystery and beauty, and how ideas can be woven in with vivid characters. Thank you for your wonderful show. Well, Lori, thank you for your wonderful comment. I had a similar experience. I can remember the first time I read that book, having checked it out at the school library like yours. Mine, my school library was a little bit bigger than a janitor's closet. I can remember the day it was autumn. The days were short. I was walking home through crispy leaves scattering across those local roads that I walked to get home. And as always... I had the whole weekend to look forward to and a whole bag of books to explore as part of that weekend. Get home, watch a little TV, most likely I Love Lucy, and then the Dick Van Dyke Show back-to-back. Perfect little hour-long combo. And then dinner. Maybe a game of kick the can if it hadn't gotten too dark. And then to bed, where I could climb under the covers turn on my reading light, and disappear into a fictional world. Now, that sounds cozy, doesn't it? That sounds like the opposite of awe in some ways. Safe, back in my nest. But there it was inside the pages, a wrinkle in time, disappearing into a fictional world. That was truly a world to disappear into, immersive, that opening section where something is happening, something strange, and Meg is, Meg is one of the great companions and protagonists in kids' books. And I felt the power of her protective love for the little genius Charles Wallace, but also her strength and the absence of her father and the excitement of going on the adventure with them all. I did feel awe at it, and I can only imagine what it was like for you, Laurie, for that to be one of the first strong girl protagonists that you encountered. Awe. That was awe, not at the book itself, at the writing of it, wasn't like the way I feel when I look at the Sistine Chapel and am just overwhelmed by the achievement of that individual, Michelangelo, lying on his back, painting that thing so many years, so many months, years. It was over, it was a few years, right? Ugh. Just the, he he was torturing himself to get it done, and yet it's so beautiful. It's so perfect. It's overwhelming to think about him. Well, I wasn't thinking about Madeline Lengel at her typewriter. But I was in awe of, I felt awe because of what I was reading. Awe based on the expanded world that suddenly felt real. As if it were 
there for me too if I studied hard and learned the tricks that would open it up for me. Accessing a world just beyond our own is like that feeling of awe. There's magic and mystery to it. And then another memory of this book, years later when my wife was pregnant for the first time and we were so excited to bring this little baby into the world and I would read aloud in bed because we wanted our little one to hear our voices and to know that the world on the outside was going to be okay that it was a great, big, vast, wonderful world full of exciting adventures. So that was our plan. I'll just read aloud while we're lying here, waiting to fall asleep. Why not? Let the little one hear my voice. And the first book I chose was A Wrinkle in Time. Thinking, I think, that this little brain could hear about this story, maybe enjoy it. Who knows if it made any kind of impression, but that little brain is now a, a fairly big brain. He's now in college, still learning almost 20 years later. So maybe the book did have a little impression. I would like to think so anyway. Speaking of learning, we've done enough prattling on. Let's bring out the experts so we can learn about The Plague by Camus. Alice Kaplan and Laura Maris are next. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now are Alice Kaplan and Laura Maris, co-authors of States of Plague, reading Albert Camus in a Pandemic, which, quote, examines Albert Camus' novel as a palimpsest of pandemic life, an uncannily relevant account of the psychology and politics of a public health crisis, end quote. Alice Kaplan and Laura Maris, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks so much Thank for having you. us. 
So I'm interested in your relationship with Camus on a, a personal and a professional level. Alice, when did you start reading Camus? Well, The Stranger was the first French novel I ever read. I was, I guess I was around 15. I was at a, a French camp in Maine, and I had no idea what it was about, really, or where it was set. And sometimes it feels like the rest of my life has been uh, some kind of attempt to give a context to that mm. novel. Mm-hmm. When did he become sort of the focus of your scholarship? Would you say that he's been the focus, or is he one figure among many? He's one figure. I mean, I had an early phase of my work when I worked on bad guys. I worked on fascist writers, and Camus came along kind of as a consolation. He was very close to a dear friend of mine, uh, the French writer Roger Grenier, whose Mm. novels I translated. And Roger worked for Camus in his newspaper after the war, and he told me so many stories about him that really made him vivid to me. Right. Was he one of the bad guys? No, he was yeah. one of the good guys. He, <laughs> okay, he good. led me away from the bad guys to I the good see. guys. I see. Got it. Got it. Okay, good. Why Camus? What was drawing you to him? Was it the biography? Was it the book? Or was it that mm. early experience with The Stranger and kind of the mystery of trying to figure out what that book was about? Yeah, I mean, all of those things, really. And there's also a sense in which, you know, Camus was very affected by American literature. And mm. I was struck by how much power comes out of his spare style, what Laura calls his restraint. I think it was just naturally attracted to that style. That sounds like maybe he was getting that from a Hemingway, or was it from the hard-boiled detective writers and some of the more of the thriller or genre writers? Yeah. Well, you know, The Stranger was very influenced by James M. Cain, the postman always mm. wins twice, that idea of somebody narrating after their death. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, he loved Faulkner, too, so it wasn't just the hard-boiled, but yeah. he was close to American literature. Right. Was he also a fan of American cinema? You know, he was very ambivalent about cinema because he wrote with a lot of irony about the way the people in Oran would flock to the cinema to forget their worries. Mm. She was much more interested in theater. And hopefully we'll get to that when we talk about Laura's rat Eurydice chapter. Right. Okay. Well, Laura, let's turn to you for a, a moment and hear what drew you to Camus. When did you start reading him? Um, yeah, I actually, I read him in high school as well, both in French and in English classes. And then I actually had the pleasure of taking a seminar on his work with Alice when I was in college. Mm. So before Alice and I became collaborators on this book, uh, I was her <laughs> student. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I was just really drawn at first to his early lyrical essays. And I have a background in in poetry and essays and translation. And so when I saw that when he was in his 20s, he had written these very beautiful pieces that were really kind of like prose poems. And Mm. that surprised me. And so I read those for the first time in college. And that's kind of how I got interested in his style. And his style is something that's you know, not necessarily restrained in the language always, but the way that he's able to channel his emotions through description, sometimes almost like a lyric poet. 
Right. Now, neither of you have mentioned his philosophy or existentialism. And my understanding is that Camus himself didn't necessarily embrace the label of existentialist. And and how did he feel about being viewed as a kind of philosopher or something philosophy adjacent, so to speak? You know, he said at one point, if, if you want to be a philosopher, write novels. Mm, mm-hmm. I think he knew his great strength was conveying philosophy through his fiction. And he was very irritated by the dominance, I think, of the Sartre Beauvoir school and wanted to distinguish himself from that. So he would right. he would always say laughing that he was not an existentialist and people asked him how many existentialists there were in France. It was just such a fashion and he he didn't like being assimilated to fashions. He was his own guy. Right. He was maybe objecting to the idea of that to be taken seriously you would have to have a systematic philosophy all worked out with with theorems and principles and and so forth, and he would rather convey that through his art. I think that's fair. Do you, Laura? Yeah, no, I was just going to say that one of the things that drew me to Camus also is his philosophy of the absurd. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. So I think people focus a lot on, you know, the seriousness of existentialism, but Camus was a person who was very interested in the, the absurdity of, you know, just feeling very full of life and and yet knowing that you know we all we all at some point die (laughs) um and he found a lot of freedom i think in just noticing tiny absurd experiences in daily life like there are always these characters in his novels who are the novelist grant in the plague who is just he's trying to write a novel and he's so stuck he wants this sort of hats off immortality, but it doesn't come to him until he actually has a brush with death. And then he takes out all the adjectives. So like these kind of gestures of refusal toward the the totalizing narrative of existentialism, but kind of more in the, the absurd humor of it, I think are important with him. Mm. Yeah, I would think that if you had an eye for the absurd in humanity, you would also find it hard to take philosophers themselves 100% serious some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, compared to Sartre, I mean, they have a very different sense of the other. So Sartre is really interested in hell being the other person and people's right. difficulty getting along. And Camus is always focused on nature and how insignificant we are in the face of nature. You know, there's that beautiful line at the end of The Stranger the tender indifference of the world. I think that's my favorite line. Mm. And in that way, he's, a and, I, and Laura says this beautifully in States of Plague. I mean, he's in many ways an ecological writer, a writer oh. of the environment. Right. Well, that seems to transition nicely into his book, The Plague. Alice, where does that fit into his body of work? Well, it's his first novel after the war. Mm-hmm. It's also his first great commercial success, which mm-hmm. embarrassed him slightly. He would say, oh, the plague has more victims than I thought. And he, <laughs> the thing that's interesting about the plague is that all the work, it's the book he put down the most. When he was, when he was writing it, he said he, he wanted to throw it away. He kept rewriting it. Very different from 
The Stranger, which he wrote practically in six weeks in a hotel room in Paris. Mm. But the plague is a long, torturous sort of Sisyphean effort on his part. And yeah, um, yeah I, I think it's it, it was kind of number two after The Stranger in terms of popularity. But with the COVID pandemic, it took a leap to number one. Yeah, right. I know you guys have an interesting experience with it during the pandemic and also, of course, your book. But before we get there, why do you think he put it down? I read that he had said, the subject seems so natural to me. Was he struggling with what the book, what he wanted it to be about? Or did it? was he taking on a responsibility that he felt obligated to something that he wasn't getting right? Or do we know why it was more difficult for him to write or took longer for him to write than a book like The Stranger? Well, I was simple answer, which is that he was constantly interrupted by his own fame. Oh, right. When he wrote The Stranger, he was young, he was alone, no one knew who he was. And then by the time he was finishing The Plague, he was the editor of this major newspaper. He was the moral voice of the resistance. And I imagine that put an incredible amount of pressure on him. He didn't like fame. Mm. So he was struggling with all of that. As well as his own illness. Oh, so right. important. Yeah. And he was naturally kind of a matinee idol, isn't the right word, but he, he was a very compelling figure, right? Handsome and kind of dashing. And it seems like once people latched onto him as a figure, that he would be someone who would be often photographed or in demand as kind of a, some kind of literary star. Yeah, and I think the world needed heroes and stars, and he didn't like the concept of heroism. You know, many people have misunderstood the plague as, you know, Dr. Ryu being a hero. And there are a lot of philosophical moments in that book where heroism is deconstructed. Right. Laura, you translate Camus, I know. You translated the plague? Mm-hmm. I did, yeah. Maybe we should just explain for the listeners what the book is basically about. How is it shaped and, and what does it cover? Yeah, so The Plague is a novel that takes place in Oran, Algeria. And it's the story of a city that slowly over the course of a week or two, and then very quickly an epidemic comes to the city and it becomes cut off from the rest of the world. And within that closed off city, there's a doctor named Ria who is, trying to get the city government to really take care of its citizens and in state health measures. And the people of the city are sort of slowly come to realize that they are trapped in the walls of Oran with this plague. Mm. And so the novel really follows the doctor's fight to save as many people as he can. The other, his friends who form a community to help him fight the plague and just the lives of these people as they suddenly intersect each other trapped within this quarantined city. Right. And a lot of people have read The Plague as an allegory for the struggle during World War II against the rise of Nazism and ideology. Was that, how important was that to Camus? And did readers and reviewers catch on to that right away? Is, or, you know, was that their interpretation? Was that his design for the book? Mm-hmm. 
That was his design. He wanted to be able to kind of speak to some of the experiences that he'd had during the resistance without kind of lapsing into a story of personal heroism, which he thought heroism was kind of dangerous because it was so close to nationalism and this kind of Manichaean thinking of like good guys and bad guys. So he wanted to create an allegory that could contain some of the complexity of people struggling in a time of occupation and war. But yeah, reviewers did pick up on it. There's famously, Sartre had some critiques of the allegory because I think for Camus, it was quite a bold thing to portray Nazism as a plague, um, Mm -hmm. as something naturally occurring. But I think for us these days, it's sort of it's more in line with the long view of how nationalism and fascism can pop up and raise their heads again and again without a kind of vigilance on the part of communities. And so, yeah, I think from our perspective now, the idea of the rise of nationalism and fascism is something that is like a plague that comes in waves that communities have to come together and fight against is maybe a little more legible than it might have been right at the end of World War II. Mm. I could see where the criticism might be founded on an idea that, well, to adopt an ideology is a a choice and it's got a a moral component to it. You're choosing evil over good or you're deciding to follow this, whereas a plague attacks people who are innocent victims. But I could also see how, on the other side of it, you say, well— ideas spread and and it's kind of a mystery as to how it happens. And you can, looking at it from the outside, you think, well, why is it that four out of 10 people believe this now when yesterday they Mm -hmm. didn't? Exactly. Something like patriotism or something that we don't assign a, a negative moral value to it necessarily, suddenly get twisted into something that is ugly without us really understanding how that came to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Drew has this really beautiful line where he says he's seen language turn the heads of so many people. And in, at one point he says, very dramatic, he says, all human sorrow came from not keeping language clear. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, there's that sense of slight disinformation, misinformation spreading through language that over time builds up and creates a kind of sickness in society. Yeah. And then the component of fear and paranoia as being applicable not only to disease, but to fear of immigration or fear of tainted impurities of blood and that kind of thing. Mm. I always like to think about the big debate right after the war between Camus and Roland Barthes, because he, a lot of people accuse Camus of having this sort of Red Cross morality. So Bart says, is it enough to be a doctor? Is it enough to be content with bandaging wounds without attacking the blows that cause them? And that was very much a kind of post-war, most communist party way of thinking about politics and fascism and the end of Nazism. But I think what COVID taught us is that There's a lot of value in an allegory that can be reassigned with every generation. Mm, Okay, that's perfect. Let's take a quick break and come back with the plague and the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Okay, we're back with Alice Kaplan and Laura Maris, experts in Albert Camus and his work, The Plague. So after COVID-19 closed the borders, what happened to the two of you? Where were you when that occurred and what were you working on? Let's start with Alice. I was in Paris and it was, gosh, it was March. Well, I don't know. You know, I have a lot of trouble since COVID with timelines and Mm, dates. Yeah. Like with any trauma, it kind of threw chronology into crisis. But I'd have to go back a little further, I think, to Laura and I decided to visit Oran. We wanted to walk the places of the novel. And we went to Oran in December 2019. And that was when there were the first reports uh, of COVID in China. That was December. So by March, I was in Paris and they shut the city. I mean, yeah. it was like in the plague. Where yeah. They say, you know, close the gates. And I remember very clearly trying to walk to the Luxembourg Gardens, you know, for one last walk in the park and getting there. And then they Ooh. had shut the gates of the Luxembourg. And walking back to my apartment, I saw that the local florist had just thrown all his flowers onto the sidewalk because he knew, you know, he had to close shop and he knew all the flowers would die and people were rushing in and taking these bouquets off the sidewalk. It was really just a scene I'll never forget. Yeah. Laura, where were you? So, yeah, after Alice and I got back from Algeria, I was in Buffalo And I was actually working on translating the plague. So believe it or not, I actually got that assignment (laughs) before COVID. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so, yeah, I had the very strange experience of translating this novel as the world around me and the news came to more and more closely resemble the world that I was going to my desk to, (laughs) to think about each day. Yeah. I read the play years and years ago. That's just about the city, right? It's the city and they kind of basically put a wall around the city, but it doesn't have the global aspects that this does. But in some sense, all of us were dealing with our own communities uh, as well as the world at large. We all had plague within and it was spreading from person to person and so on. So I guess immediately people seem to realize that this book by Camus would be the book to read. I don't think there's a more famous book about the plague other than the Decameron, which nobody's going to read for uh, advice about a modern day plague. You know, just as Laura was translating the novel, I was I had it on my syllabus for my course on the modern <laughs> novel. And so I believe it was in March 2020 that I taught the plague on Zoom. And the thing that was so amazing was that the students really thought it was nonfiction. They thought they were reading a documentary. Oh. It seemed so real to them. And then when we investigated a little further, yeah, you realize that because we're in this world where everything transmits, there was no city that you could say, oh, the plague is there. And if you could get out of there, then you'd be in a non-plague area. You know, for us, there was no non-plague area. It was the whole world. And that was very different, they realized. And they also were really shocked that no one in the novel wears masks. Mm. (laughs) 
Right. That they're going to the theater, that they're walking around, that there wasn't, I mean, there's something even very terrifying in our world about, you know, our separation was very radical from other mm-hmm. people. It was, it was frightening to be with other people. And, you know, separation is really a deep theme of the plague. So you can resonate with it, although the representation of separation is different in the novel. One thing we haven't talked about was we talked about the the plague as a an analogy to World War II or a, uh, an allegory, but we haven't talked about his real world basis for the plague. And did he live through anything like that? And what or did he base it on anything that had actually happened? Yeah, I think one thing that's really interesting is he did read a lot of plague narratives and counts of plague as he was working on the novel, kind of for his own research. Mm-hmm. And there is a granular, a granular awareness of strategies that cities would use, but also a kind of suspicion of of kind of the the municipal management of plague. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's a really, I think, one of the most kind of sensitive things about class in the novel is the way Camus shows the plague mapped onto the city. It starts in the outskirts, and he points out how the outskirts of the city are where trash collection comes later, so there are more rats, so there's mm-hmm. more cases of plague. And like he really, um, he shows how the inequality of the city is also mapped on to where the plague strikes hardest and slowly the ambulances come closer and closer into the middle of the city. So yeah, I think that he had a sense of reading these documents about plague from the Decameron forward through like plague accounts in Marseille and Oran. There was a cholera epidemic in Oran and he didn't live through that, but he had read accounts of it. And the plague cemetery that he describes in the novel is very similar to the cholera cemetery in Oran, which is, we actually, we visited it. And it's this old colonial cemetery that is really falling apart. (laughs) And you can't even go inside. You can look through at these graves and it's a pretty abandoned place. But his description of the plague cemetery in the novel is very similar to that actual cemetery that exists and that you can visit. So, yeah, even though the novel is an allegory, there's kind of this granular truth to the parts of it that are about an epidemic. But Camus was also ill. He was diagnosed with tuberculosis when he was a teenager, and he fell ill very suddenly. And at the time, that was a very serious diagnosis. So at the time that he was writing The Plague, he had these bouts of fever. He had relapses. He went through these kind of lung surgeries that are terrifying to talk about now, where they would actually collapse a lung to try to get it to heal. And so one of the reasons that he was separated from his wife for part of the war was because he had traveled to France for a tuberculosis cure, and then he got stuck in France while his wife was in Algeria. So all of these things, this illness and and separation, were also playing out in his own life, and he did have a kind of firsthand experience with them. Right. 
Did you say they would collapse a lung to try to get it to heal? Yeah, it's called pneumothorax. It was before penicillin. It was one of the treatments they would use. Mm. So, yeah, when he was younger, he had this procedure on one lung. And then just as he was writing the plague, he relapsed and had to have the procedure done on the opposite lung. Wow. And so he was definitely very ill and stuck in oral, which first he was ill and stuck in oral, which was the city he didn't love. And then he was his doctors sent him to France for more treatment. And that's how he ended up getting stuck in France. Right. It's really poignant that in the novel, Dr. Ryu's wife is the one who travels to the sanitarium on the mainland So he put his own experience in the person of the doctor's wife. And then, of course, she dies. I I guess that's not really a spoiler in this case. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you find during your trips to Oran? What were you hoping to find by by going there and visiting these sites? Was it the settings uh, in the novel The Plague in particular, or were you looking for other elements of Camus' life? Well, I'll start and then Laura can can say more, but I was really surprised. It made me appreciate the novel differently to see how Camus' sense really of the kind of psychogeography of Oran, you know, that started to understand everything he was saying about the Spanish neighborhoods with the poorer people on the one-story houses where, you know, the old asthmatic man lives and he's counting his chickpeas and it's um Kemi was very, very interested in the poor neighborhoods, as Laura just said, and also the colonial unconscious in the novel. I mean, the fact that the indigenous quarter, the village negre, was up high because the native Algerians had been really expelled from the center of the city and made to live in a kind of ghetto. I also have a, a wonderful memory of going to the theater where. Camus sets that scene of Eurydice. The theater is there and we were able to talk our way in during the day and we saw the red velvet upholstery on the seats, the same upholstery that's in the novel. Mm. Even all these years later. And Laura, what were you hoping to find in your trip? Yeah, well, so because I was translating the plague, I was really interested in being there to do research for my translation. And whenever it's possible for me to see the place that is kind of the setting of a book that I'm working on, I try to go and travel and see it because I always find that it it changes something about how I read. If I can kind of try to see through the author's eyes a little bit, or at least kind of layer my memory of the place on top of their memory of how they describe it in the book. Mm-hmm. And with the plague, yeah, those colonial cemeteries, for example, there's very complicated kind of <laughs> covenants or um, agreements between France and Algeria to maintain those cemeteries. And yet the plague cemetery is this kind of unconscious that isn't maintained, that's sort of separate from those agreements. And Mm. so, yeah, just being there and also understanding the scale of the city. And we were really lucky to explore the city with Abdel Sam Abdelhaq, who's a a friend of ours who runs um, and works with this organization called Bel Horizontal, which is 
kind of devoted to the historical memory of the city in contemporary times and when it was under colonial occupation. And so we were able to walk around with him and to understand the scale of just these streets that the characters are walking, the kind of political geography of the city, as I mentioned before, and also just to have this sense of a city that has turned its back to the water. Um, that's something that Camus often said about Oran. And it, the city is more open to the seafront these days than it was in his time. Some of these walks that the characters take throughout the city and the way that the novel plays out in these kind of chance meetings in the streets, those are really long walks. And mm. gasoline is rationed. These kinds of the everyday caring for people walking through the city, it changed my perspective of the scale of the book and just like the effort to resist the disease in a time when, yeah, everything is kind of rationed and the doctor and his team are up against not just the difficulty of fighting an illness, but also the difficulty of provisions and men and having people to help. So that community of resistance became a lot more real to me. That's so interesting. I've never thought about that before, but it makes perfect sense. I often think about a, a novelist and how they need room in their mind to help them invent things other than just the words on the page. And the more memories they have or the more they're able to bring in things that they had experienced or places they had seen gives them more space in which to maneuver. And I, I never thought that it would also be valuable for a translator to have a similar mm -hmm. kind of psychic experience, even though you could translate word by word and sentence by sentence, but getting the, the mood and the tone and the emphasis that it would be, mm -hmm. it, it would give you a kind of grounding to have some visual memories or sense experiences that you could draw upon as well. Yeah, and I think it, it makes the places in the book, you know, like Alice mentioned, the village Negra, like that, it's the kind of ghetto that was created for the Algerian residents of the city when the colonial authorities took hold. And you can't really know how to translate the passage around that place, I think, without speaking to people who know the history of it and who live there. Right. And... So I think for the reason of like having space and room to maneuver in your mind, yes, and also for having the being closer to the mm -hmm. the life of the city and its history, it's easy to translate as if there's like an equivalency between different kinds of neighborhoods or as if you're making that neighborhood into something that Americans would understand in a city of their own, but in fact, I think in translation, it's often much more helpful to understand how you preserve the specific histories of places, too, mm -hmm. and how they come into the novel for a reason. And right. so that was something that was really important to me, to understand the Algerian context and to not just kind of translate from afar. Right. Camus was a big fan of Moby Dick, and he mm. wrote... In order to write a good allegory, you had to have an intense sense of the real. Right. Okay. Let's turn to States of Plague. And the book is written as a series of essays by the two of you in alternating chapters. What topics 
do you cover? It seems like you're coming at this book and Camus from a bunch of different angles. So how did you select the topics and what did you choose to write about? That's a great question. We went by our intuition and it was the result of, we would talk every Sunday and it was during the total isolation. Mm -hmm. And before long, we had carved out, you know, each of us according to our own interests. So I I'm very interested in history, and I had discovered that, in fact, Oran was had a fascist mayor in the 1930s mm. um, before the outbreak of war. So I had had a chance to go to the archives and work on this crazy guy. He was a defrocked priest. His name was Gabriel Lambert. And so I wanted to write a chapter called Toxic City about Lambert. Laura could tell the same story about different chapters. It just it came together almost magically. Mm. Mm -hmm. It was really, I think, important for us to have these conversations every Sunday. And we were writing to each other between our cities <laughs> as we were in quarantine. And I think that the chapters came to us in response to, to the things that we were experiencing, you know, in our own lives as we were dealing with COVID and caring for people. And yeah, I think for me, I, I got interested in Camus' ecological imagination of plague, because under COVID, some of that original allegory around World War II felt like it really collapsed to me. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, highlighting some of those threads, you know, like about the rats that are, <laughs> they're so cartoonish almost in the beginning, but then there's a kind of animal memory. And I think this happens in the ocean as well, in the plague, in that famous swimming scene. And so those kinds of places where Chandler's imagination touched the, the living world were interesting to me as well. You know, that's, that's my favorite chapter, I think, of Laura's, if I had to choose. I mean, I love them all, but I love her chapter called Rat Eurydice, because she starts with that cartoon, the rat twirling around and dropping dead. But she goes so much further than I ever thought it was possible to go. I mean, she links that scene to the scene when an opera singer dies. And then she goes to the swimming scene, which I had always thought of as a kind of feel-good scene of, you know, male bonding, a respite from the plague. But in fact, she reads through her translation, you know, she can read so closely. She sees rat fur in the description of the ocean she hears the hiss of a rat that sounds oceanic. It's, it's just a brilliant, it's just a tour de force, that chapter. So when you read that, Alice, do you think, oh, this is a, a wonderful essay written by Laura? Or do you think, hmm, A plus? <laughs> no, that's terrible. No, I think, I think I'm never going to read the novel the same way again, mm. having read it with Laura and she would read the translation out loud, and I would I would see things I'd never seen before. Mm. Laura, what chapter of Alice's was your favorite? I love Les Separés. I love her chapter on the, the separated lovers. Mm. And just, yeah, how much it, I think, both informs the novel and also speaks to what a lot of people were feeling when they were in long distance relationships that were working and then all of a sudden the borders closed. And I remember seeing on social media this hashtag love is not tourism. 
people who were trying to get visas or be able to travel to be with their partners in the pandemic. And I think Camus really captures the psychology of that waiting and kind of the grammar of it. And Alice writes so beautifully about that, how his personal history with his wife informed that kind of grammar of waiting that he was able to, to create in the novel and these passages where you can just feel the tension between the lovers pulling, how you're just longing for someone and it's reflected in the patterns of your thoughts. So Alice writes really beautifully about that. Yeah. Well, and there is the character that I love to hate the most because he's <laughs> so desperate to get back with his partner, with his wife. He's willing to do anything. and He kind of loses his moral compass, really, in his mm. desperation. And then when he finally does reunite with her, it's not even clear he knows who she is or can even see her. So mm. there's a lot of tragedy in that desperation. Did the two of you think, as you were living through the pandemic as we all were, did you feel like Camus had prepared you in some sense? Did you go through it thinking, oh, he anticipated this, or I understand what I'm seeing uh, in the world and in the responses because this had happened in the plague? Or did it feel like it was something you could never have expected and the Camus was not a, a kind of how-to guide for what was going to happen during a plague? Mm, I mean, I had a couple of really uncanny experiences with that as I was translating, because the nature of translation is you do like a little chunk every day. Mm -hmm. And one day I was working on the passage in the novel where he talks about all of these kind of bogus newspapers devoted to the epidemic that are full of like weird recipes for medicines that probably will kill you and oh, wow. you know horoscopes <laughs> and like all this stuff like you know that was um, and he says like even though paper was rationed these kind of media organs sprang up to tell you all about you know how wine will cure you and how the, the prophecy of so and so is coming in this hour and I came downstairs from translating that passage and my husband, Matt, was sitting at the table and he was reading the newspaper and he was like, oh, there's a paper pulp shortage. <laughs> kind of floored <laughs> by the granularity of that overlap. <laughs> yeah, right. I would just add on my part that the swimming scene is really important to me as a coping mechanism. So during the pandemic, I started going swimming with two friends. And we swam all through the winter, actually. You know, we got more and more layers of neoprene, but it was only in the water that during the worst of the confinement that I could feel some sense of freedom or horizons or that, mm. you know, freedom of movement when we were so locked in. And I would silently thank Camus and I would repeat in my mind that phrase, we had a moment of respite, and now we had to begin again. Right. Did your experience of living through the pandemic or writing this book change your understanding of Camus? Hmm. You know, I had bought his own disdain for the novel to some mm. extent. I thought, oh, it's kind of a disaster. You know, it's his popular novel, not his mm -hmm. most serious novel in an odd way. And each character kind of represents something. And now, with Laura's translation, I really do think she's given us the better novel. I mean, it's got so many layers, and 
The writing itself mirrors the experience of waiting. There's a lot to admire in the novel that I hadn't understood before. Mm. He's a very careful craftsman with his passages and with the structure of the novel and the kind of dynamic between the day-to-day story of the doctor and then the more kind of philosophical passages. That kind of alternation between them, it really creates a tension in the book. But for me as a translator, it was I learned as I was going through how to capture that and how essential that the difference between kinds of passages in the book was to the novel coming to life. <laughs> Um, so, you know, like when he's talking about bureaucracy, he'll make his language just like a little more bureaucratic to have a level of irony with it. Mm. Um, so things like that were really beautiful to notice. And I don't think I necessarily would have picked up on all of that if I hadn't been translating it. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, the book is called States of Plague, Reading Albert Camus in a Pandemic, published by the University of Chicago Press. Alice Kaplan and Laura Maris, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And finally today, the little sweetener like a dish of candy we make available to our patrons. A a dish of those melon-colored chalky candies that you ladle out with a spoon. Although, those are probably gone now. A victim of the pandemic is my guess. Everything would likely be all wrapped up these days. But but this is not real. (laughs) Not really handing out candy, so we're free to imagine. Imagine if... Imagine a dish of germless candy sitting at the exit of the podcast, and on your way out, you'd you'd like a little sugar, a sweet little taste on your tongue as you hit the exits. Well, voila, French, French translator number two, Alison Strayer, who was here to discuss her experience translating Annie Ernaux. After our conversation, I asked her this special extra question. Okay, our guest is Alison Strayer, Canadian-born writer and translator, including of the works of Nobel laureate Annie Ernaux. Alison, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. I assume from the question that you know it's your last book. Right. Well, I don't think I would choose one. I I wouldn't want it to end. I think I would just Look out the window at a at a river, oh, yeah, and just peacefully sit by a, a window and look at moving water or something. But I have been asked a desert island book. Mm-hmm. Question. Mm-hmm. I could tell you hypothetically on a desert island, I knew I was going to get off it. Um, I would read the complete journals of Mavis Gallant, who oh. they're very close to my heart, and her complete uh, journals, her diaries, were supposed to have come out quite a while ago, and they still haven't. So. So that's my hypothetical. <laughs> okay. Have you read any excerpts from them or anything? One in the New Yorker about her Spanish years. Uh-huh. She moved from Montreal to Europe, and she's about 28, and she was a young writer with other young writers in the Franco years, and she was sending back stories to the New Yorker, and somehow they were all starving and selling their clothes. <laughs> and her agent took the 
the funds from the uh, stories, and she, so she never knew that they'd been published. But that's not the whole thing. That's the whole scene. She describes the you know the scene in uh, in Spain at, at the time, and that's the only installment I've read and I don't know where the other ones are but she lived to be 93 I think so yeah we're so used to these days having everything at our fingertips and if we want to read something we can read it if we want to hear something we can listen to it and and everything but it's uh sounds like this is one that you are waiting for the publishing world to get their act together and bring out in in a nice edition for you yes yes so I would really like to read all of them. They must. There are probably many volumes, I would think. And hopefully, it's in a uh, comfortable Parisian cafe rather than on an actual desert island. Yeah. Okay. Well, Alison Strayer, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Well, thank you very much for having me. Okay. That will do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Allison Strayer for that cameo appearance and to our guests, Alice Kaplan and Laura Maris. Please do check out their book, States of Plague, especially if you're trying to make sense of that crazy period where the world was hushed as we retreated into the safety of extreme isolation. You've no doubt been wondering who in the world was younger than age 44 when the Nobel Prize Committee came a-calling. Which Nobel Prize winner could possibly have been younger than Camus was when he won the thing? Well, it was Rudyard Kipling, who was just 42. So there you go. So if you're, let's say, 40 or 41, it's time to get cracking. Time's running out if you're trying to set the record, and if you're 20, well, you still have a bit of time, so good luck to you. Speaking of which, I wish we had a bit of time, but we don't. We're nearly at the end. Only time enough left to say, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>